Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you for getting up very early. Thank you. Some of you have been to our editorial intelligence events at the Cass Business School who are kindly hosting and partnering with us on this event, as is Policy Exchange, as is Read in Partnership. We couldn't put on these breakfast discussing thought-provoking issues of the day without our partners. And uh, I think it's fair to say that quite a lot of people do want to know whether the big society is working. I'm going to hand over not to Philip Johnston of the Daily Telegraph, who's unwell today, but to Neil O'Brien of Policy Exchange, who's going to take over as chair. He will introduce the panel. The panel will each speak for about five minutes with their take on the topic, and their remarks will be rounded up and commented on by Jenny Russell at the end, and then there'll be Q&As. We are being recorded and podcast for eternal posterity, so if you're feeling shy, get into that... um, Well, I would say get over it if you're feeling shy, but if you are feeling shy... Don't speak and put your hand up. And with no further ado, here's Neil O'Brien. Thank you very much. Um, uh, So the topic of our discussion this morning is, is the big society working? But I'm sure we will um, uh, have an equally lively discussion about what on earth the big society really is. Um, To talk about all these things, we're going to have our conversation kicked off with a series of very, very expert um, commentators. Uh, and then we're going to hand over to you guys to have uh, a discussion in the round. Now, we're going to start with uh, Steve Moore. He has the, the longest biography in the world because he's a sort of serial social innovator. He's now about to become a director of the Big Society Network, a huge background in uh, starting innovations in the public sector, in the voluntary sector, in the private sector. Uh, he's created lots of new businesses. He's done lots of regeneration projects. Um, and he... Um, has created all kinds of organizations like Reboot Britain. Um, he's going to be followed by Kevin Brown, who is the director of new business for Read in Partnership. He um, leads on their um, DWP-focused work. Uh, we are then going to hear from um, Professor Paul Palmer, uh, who is uh, got a fantastically long title. So if I find your, your exact title, Associate Dean for Ethics, Sustainability and Engagement here. Um, he um, is also a consultant for a lot of different organizations, including UBS, on uh, charities and on corporate um, social responsibility. Uh, we are then uh, going to hear from the Minister for Civil Society, uh, Nick Hurd, uh, and our uh, round of commentators is going to be um, finished up uh, with some words from Jenny Russell, who's an extremely distinguished commentator, as you know, uh, writes now for The Guardian and The Sunday Times, uh, but before that worked for a long time uh, for the BBC and uh, ITN. Um, so without any further ado, uh, I'm going to hand over to Steve to kick off the session. Okay, uh, thank you, Neil, and uh, thank you, Julia, for the invite. Um, it was about a year ago that I first encountered this idea, this raw, unformed idea of the big society, when I was invited to Portcullis House to meet a number of people who were working very close to the now Prime Minister, who had started developing, uh, sort of erecting the scaffolding around this, this big, big, unformed idea. And since then, without really knowing quite what's happening, I've become more and more sucked in to uh, this concept and idea. So let me say, I, th- I think, take the five minutes to say a few things. One is, I think, some kind of uh, talk through a little bit in terms of my kind of take on what the big society represents as an idea and the concept. Two, I think, 
about my experience of having gone around the country as avid readers of the broadsheets and in particularly New, York, New Yorker. If you get a chance to read uh, Lauren Collins' superb piece in the New Yorker, I think it's the, long, it's the finest piece yet written on the big society uh, and features a lot of me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then say a little bit, I think, in terms of I think where, where, it's, where it's heading and perhaps comment on whether it's working or not. So for me, the big society is, uh, it seemed to me, a, a perfectly reasonable um, and actually quite hugely kind of politically imaginative idea uh, to emerge uh, in the run-up to the election. It felt to me that it was, firstly, I felt it was like a very generous and um, open idea, and it seemed to be consistent with some of the optimism that's characterised this Prime Minister. Uh, second, it seemed to have strong roots into traditional conservatism and, its idea, and some of the kind of key fundamentals of traditional conservatism. But three, I think most importantly, it felt like an idea of its time. It felt like an idea that was rooted in some of the challenges that we face, both as a society and as an economy. And it felt to me that at a time when we were, we were having to deal with a massive deficit and all the implications for that, and particularly for the public sector, at a time when growth in the economy is slow, um, snail-like, and we're not quite sure where the growth's coming from in the future, I think a focus in on society in on uh, community energy and somehow this sense of un untapped um, uh, social capital that exists in uh, uh, um, underneath the state, underneath markets and so on, seemed to be a perfectly reasonable one. As a creative, I was kind of attracted to it because of its, the unformed nature of it. And I think one of the challenges that we've had, and I think one of the challenges the government have had in the, during the campaign and, and since is that the big societies not being delivered in a way that would have happened under previous governments, and not just the previous government, I think governments over the last 30 years. At the heart is this, it's clear to me, is, that, is this ardent attempt to push power downwards. As I think Francis Maud is eloquently put, it's not just about sort of letting go, it's about pushing down. And he's uh, just used the metaphor of trying to get chewing gum off the bottom of your sole of your shoe to describe how difficult it is to do this. I think that I, the idea of moving from policy by imposition, which has defined our public policy and politics for 30 years and more, to something which is more about enabling and so on, is, I think, challenging and presentationally, and I find it challenging when I've been going around the country debating this issue and so on. People have come to expect that big ideas like the Big Society are follow through with lots and lots and lots of policy initiatives and so on. I think there are, many of them are in there at the moment. They certainly feature in the new departmental plans. There's lots of things in there about de decentralization, about community empowerment, and, and there will be a lot more. But I think that's been uh, a challenge um, presentationally. The thing that I find going around the country, and I've been to dozens and dozens of meetings all over the country, is that the idea is contested for sure. But I think that most of the criticism that I've encountered and been exposed to and, and the people I've debated with are not, at no point are they arguing that the big society is not necessarily a bad idea that community empowerment is not is a bad idea. Much of it has been, the, of the conjecture, has been generated by the, the, the issues of dealing with the deficit. So most of the issues I've encountered have not really been about the big society per se, but instead that a concern that, at its most extreme, that it's masking what, uh, a range of Thatcherite cuts, or it's, um, it's, it's a kind of nebulous concept that it will have no follow through. So it's, I think that, so I've been able to, I think, 
those of us like Nick and others who've been defending this routinely, have able, I think, have been able to increasingly be able to point to examples in policy and practice where we are, where some of these ideas are following through. The one example I want to use because it is my background, and I've done a lot of work on welfare economics back in the in 1980s. And I think one example where I think we can see some evidence of progress is and some contrast with the previous government is in welfare reform. And um, it seems to me that how welfare has developed and the welfare is uh, uh, um, over the course of the last 25, 30 years, we have this huge kind of complexity of benefits that got to the stage where virtually no one who was administering those benefits could possibly understand what was going on, never mind the recipients of those benefits. And the constant attempt by policymakers with very good intentions to constantly update, reform, generate new initiatives and so on, left us in a state of huge complexity. And, then, and at no stage did Labour government, I think this will, will be permanently um, be, um, something that we'll be reminded of. During that, process, during that period of you know, unpre unprecedented growth that we didn't reform the welfare system, we didn't simplify the welfare system, and so on, and the fact that we're doing it now says to me, I think that in some ways the proposals of Ian Duncan Smith represent um, the, the clearest example of what, what, what the big society is about and how it impacts on public policy in a different way in which we, we will implement public policy in the future. So the final thing I would say is that the work that I'm doing at the moment is largely looking at how we can use and harness network technologies, mobile technologies, the internet and so on around this. And the Big Society Network uh, is focused very much on looking at developing an innovative platform for new ideas that will support the Big Society and ideas that probably won't come from government. So a lot of our work over the next few months will be working with businesses, working with technology, looking at new ways in which we can explore the, exploit the new affordances of new technologies in new ways to reach out to people and help people to convene at local level. A lot of what we'll be doing is looking at what new ways in which we can support local communities to make, take, um, to make the most of the opportunities that have been created by new forms of legislation. So at the moment, I'm very excited about that. We have three Over the next three months, we'll be announcing a series of big partnerships that we'll be, um, we'll be entering into to deliver some of those services. So keep an eye on our website, bigsociality.co.uk. For more information. Thanks. Yeah, so watch this space. Thank you. Steve, um, Kevin, over to you. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I've just returned from Australia uh, where we, we were delivering welfare to work services out there. And I suppose trying to really understand ourselves what the big society meant, I thought I'd try and get the Australians to help me a little bit. Um, and they, they were no help at all, I have to say. Um, they didn't really understand it. And, and I think the closest they got, they thought it was some form of magazine, actually. Um, but when I explained what the concept was about, as best I could, and I'm, I'm not going to share with, that, with you today, the one thing that they said was quite critical in it, I think, was about the engaging and enabling element of it. How do you do that? And I suppose I have two points that I want to cover in my sort of five minutes, because it's quite a tough subject in five minutes. The first is the question I ask is, what does the big society mean to many of the deprived communities that we're currently working in? And the second is the importance, and it picks up on Steve's point, of it being really connected with the welfare reforms that Ian Duncan Smith's leading on at the moment, which I don't think it is. And I think um, we will have a more powerful outcome and a greater success if we make that connection. Now, as Reading Partnership, our, our philosophy and our approach is very much about how we help disadvantaged people achieve long-term sustained employment. And I think if you want people to be active and have a civil society, that's a cornerstone for us that we try to get to. 
And it's not just about job, it's much more about what does it mean for you in terms of health, well-being, social community engagement, etc. So I think the big society creates a, a framework that we can capitalise on, but I think you have to do more than kind of hope it will work, I think is where we would come from. Now we've helped over the last uh, 12 years, 110,000 people return to work uh, across the UK, some of those most deprived. And that success is very much built around the society, the community, the engagement. And I think you have to facilitate some of that. And the reason why is if you look at the majority of people that we deal with, um, there are kind of four things that jump off the page all the time. Uh, one is that they have little or no work history at all. They don't have easy access to the social networks that you and I more naturally might take on, uh, as a given. Um, we provide often facilities for them, whether it's top down or bottom up, and they don't use them. Um, and they're not really confident about life or things getting better. So I think you have to do something to facilitate that change more than hope it will happen for us. So I think it's hard for them to see how they fit into the big society at the moment, because it doesn't feel like something that is going to work for them. So I think we, we're obliged to do something about infrastructure and support. So it's not top down, it's about getting them to understand how they can create that together. And my brief example in the time that I've got would be talk about our experiences about five, six years ago in the Gorbals uh, in, uh, in Glasgow, where we were dealing with some of the most socially excluded people that I've ever come across. And the success of that was to actually get them much more engaged in being uh, involved in painting and decorating, upholstery, taking some value in their community, that the community was involved in engaging them. But the biggest challenge actually for us to do that was actually just to engage them. And we had to knock on the doors of tower blocks for week after week, an election campaign type model at the end of the day, just to get them involved. Now, it was their community and people questioned whether they were interested in the community. And through those kind of very interactive ideas, with some social entrepreneurs, with some learning providers, with some health practitioners, all of that mobilisation, we helped about five, 550 very, very long, long-term employed return to work, which changed the fabric of it. But what was more interesting, and I think it's the power that we have to harness through this, through the local organisations and how you do it, is once they were engaged, they understood the change in the concept and they bought into that. And they became actually advocates of the big society in the community and did a lot more. Because before that, they were locked behind their doors, you know, day in, day out, and didn't trust anybody. So I don't think the big society will do anything for that deprived group at the moment unless we do something a little different than we're doing now to make that because they are very much the power of the community. And I think there's some really important lessons there about that engagement model that we need to do. If you mobilise, I think we'll have a greater success. And I think we need to do much more around that. And that did draw on people who were those social entrepreneurs that I said. You had to go out and find them. So it is important that we address not only individual needs, but the needs of communities together. And I'm not sure people know how to do that that well. So I think there are pockets of it. But I think, you know, why is this so important for us is that those that are most furthest away from the marketplace, the poorest and most de deprived, will benefit most from the big society. But I don't think that group will benefit from it in the current model, and I think we need to do something about that. And we'll be able to do even more, I think, if we connect Ian Duncan Smith's reforms that are going on at the moment. I think there is a clear onus in his policy changes for the private sector and the third sector to get together to create, for us, long-term sustainable employment. And the only way that we've been able to do that is through engaging with communities and partners. Um, so we need the big society, I think, to provide that framework when the work programme is introduced and those reforms that take place so that we can maximise what we're going to do. So 
My solution very much is a very simple one, that what we need to do is we need to be clear about the kind of infrastructure and put together very innovative and creative partnerships that can work together, not against each other with different agendas. Because at the moment I suggest that the audience that we're trying to reach most of all will see nothing but punitive stuff that's in the current welfare reform. We can turn that around overnight if we actually engage and say at the very bottom is ownership for you, there is a solution for you, there are those social entrepreneurs. So it isn't about you, you being able to run a job club tomorrow or run your lo local museum. It's how, as part of that journey together, we can do that. So what I hope together is that by working together, we get a better set of outcomes for it. And one, we get people to understand. So when I ask the question of the Australians or I ask the question in the UK, I think in six months' time, if we connect that better, then we will get the best answer is that I, sh I do understand what it is. I understand why ownership and my accountability counts but it needs some facilitation, and I don't believe that's there at the level that I would like to see it. So very that's my nice. hope for the future. Very good, that's good, good provocative stuff. Thank you very much, Kevin. Um, Professor Palmer, over to you. Thank you very much. When uh, the, um, uh, the first speaker began, he talked about David Cameron, the current Prime Minister's um, perception of the big society. And when uh, the, um, that first paper was produced, I was intrigued at the time because um, the research, when I looked into it, it seemed to me that there was a rich, if you like, uh, tradition, particularly in the Conservative Party, ranging through Butler, MacLeod, into the 19th century, through to the Israeli appeal, around One Nation Toryism uh, and the concept of One Nation. And I felt that there was a, uh, an intellectual, if you like, contextual side to that, which actually has never really been explored from an academic uh, another perspective. And I was very disappointed initially with that uh, response, so I wanted to get that in now, because that's what I was arguing with my students about a year ago, uh, that, uh, that that would be coming in. My major problem, if you like, with the term big society is that I think it's a very abstract concept. I don't think people can understand. I think the articulation we've just heard is a good example of that. And I was much more interested, and I actually argued at the time to students, that I felt a more uh, better term would be the responsible society. That would have been, I think people could have probably began to have understood that a bit more. And I'll explain uh, later on where I come from that expression. I mean, clearly, uh, the current debate has unfortunately about big society, as the last two speakers have identified, has been defined primarily as a cuts agenda. And I think that's a great shame. And reflecting on the Duncan Smith initiatives, um, I was very disappointed in one sense. In fact, I thought I was back in the 19th century when I heard the Today programme interview with Duncan Smith last week when, one of the, uh, when the interviewer came out with the term the deserving poor. And uh, the last time I think I, I, I read that expression was in the Charity Organisation Society's debate with the Webbs and the Fabian Society uh, when they were constructing the, uh, the Poor Law Report. So, you know, if we're going to start using that language, then it's actually very, very disappointing. Um, instead, I felt that, uh, and I argued this uh, as, uh, at the time when Sir Stuart Everington, the chief executive of NCBO, spoke about the big society here two weeks ago, that if we were going to start um, delving into the past and into history, it might be appropriate, as we can now share an aircraft carrier with the French, that perhaps Rousseau might be a better philosopher uh, to explore. And in particular, Rousseau's, of course, thesis about the, uh, the tension between the individual uh, for freedom and that of the responsibility of the citizen in a state and in a society. And I think that's where I would like to place the debate rather than where it's currently being placed. The need, as I said, for uh, an academic stroke contextual uh, grounding in this area is still needed, very much needed, and it is lacking. 
Um, however, we're not in the 19th century, we're not in the 20th century, we're in the 21st century, and we also need to move on. And two of the themes that I wanted to move on with was first one that has already been picked up was about IT. And uh, here we, ha we host uh, a website called Know How Nonprofit, uh, which is a portal, an information portal that we developed about three years ago with funding from, uh, from the Big Lottery, uh, which actually was designed to ensure that knowledge transfer from CAS, from our MSc courses here, which only take a few people, would be able to be transferred out and that knowledge basis would be able to be uh, shared with people in either Glasgow or Outer Hebrides or wherever. And, um, and the reason why I mentioned that was, was that about um, three weeks ago here at CAS, we facilitated in the afternoon um, Scott's Care. Now, Scott's Care, has anyone ever heard of Scott's Care in the audience? There are a couple of people nodding. Well, Scott's Care was founded uh, at the time of James I of England, James VI of Scotland. Uh, it's interestingly got a catchment area. It defines London, by the way, from Gatwick to Luton. Um, but unlike other, other communities, particularly immigrant communities, um, in the past, Scots don't have a defined area, never had a defined area. And one of the things that Scots Care debated with us and our team here was how did they reach people in the 21st century? And one of the things we did explore quite considerably uh, with the know-how team here that facilitated it was the use of social media. And I think the whole IT point and the use of social media is one that is, again, still relatively un un unnetworked, undiscovered, the use of Web 2-based technology. Um, it, you know, um, we have this view that uh, with Facebook it's done primarily by people like my teenage son. In reality, um, by the end of the session here, we had one of the 82-year-old trustees of uh, Scott's Care happily twittering away. So, uh, and I mean twittering, not twittering. Uh, the, um, so uh, I think, uh, you know, barriers, I mean, you know, the, the, one of the aims of the government and certainly of a 21st century society is, is the embracing of new technology. And I see that debate very much within the IT uh, area relating to big society. I want to conclude by saying about this debate that unfortunately it's also has obviously been, or will be, increasingly polarised into uh, a political position. I thought it was interesting that when I mentioned One Nation Tourism, of course, I could have mentioned Churchill, who of course had the distinction of being both a cabinet minister in both a conservative and a liberal government in his time, so perhaps a, more of an expression for a coalition government at the present moment. But I was also taken by reading, um, rereading the other day, uh, when I was preparing for this speech, the work of Richard Crossman and Richard Crossman's diaries. Of course, Richard Crossman these days is most famous for, of course, uh, being the inspiration behind the Yes Minister uh, series from his diaries. But, of course, uh, one of the most interesting things he recorded in his diary, and this is quite an interesting comment from an icon of the left, I mean, remember he was editor of New Statesman, among other, a New Society and others, uh, and other things, was that um, he made the comment when he became Secretary of State for Health and Social Services in 1967, when he, when he was responding to the, uh, to the AIDS report, that I was struck by how much our statutory NHS depends on volunteers. How struck our NH, statutory NHS was dependent on volunteers. And I think this whole aspect of volunteering and, uh, and that role is again a relatively under-researched under topic and particularly how that's going to be engaged with um, in the big society. Thank you, Paul. Um, <coughs> before we hand over to Nick, I, I wonder if I can kind of poke you a bit about this. So, um, it seems to me that people mean a lot of different things when they talk about the big society. There are roughly three categories of, of things. Uh, and it, obviously, if we're going to have a meaningful concept, you need to talk about what the big society 
isn't as well as what it is. So sometimes people talk about it being about um, more accountable public services, more independent of government. So for example, Michael Gove's <laughs> free schools reform or elected police accountability or the publication of data that allows us all to hold public services to account like crime maps or public spending data. That's one sort of thing I've sometimes heard described as being part of the big society. Another sort of set of things is really about um, reducing the demand for government, trying to fix the broken society, a word that you don't hear so much. So that would be the welfare reforms, the attempts to get people to deal with antisocial behaviour directly. Uh, and the third part, which I suppose is, is most relevant to your work, is, is this part which is about voluntarism. How do you encourage a culture of voluntarism? How do you get um, charities and voluntary groups doing more? All, all that kind of thing. Now, do, do you feel that this is a, a roughly right conception of the big society, or are the bits of that that you think are, are something else, or you would describe in some way, somewhere differently? Um, how many of you... Um, think that you understand what the government is trying to achieve with the big society? Put your hands up. Um, good, that's a lot more than I usually get. Um, um, so we're, we're, we're making progress uh, already. Um, I had a really interesting 24 hours yesterday in terms of understanding how people are responding to the big society message. I had, uh, I had breakfast much earlier than this um, with some leading British businesses who were thinking about what they needed to do differently in terms of supporting their communities. And the uh, director of Sainsbury's was musing about why it's called the big society, because in her view, it was all about uh, engaging, inspiring, connecting lots of small societies. Um, I then went to, uh, had lunch then, and I did a speech to a group of charities and social enterprises. And for them, it's about the opportunity uh, to help many more people um, through a bigger opportunity to participate in delivering public services. Um, went to vote in the evening and a, co and a colleague kept running up to me and he said, Nick, he said, you know, I thought this big society stuff was rubbish. He said, but I've got it now. I went to a local event and I've realised it's about local people helping local people. And on he strode, a man bathed in a new light. <laughs> and in the evening, <coughs> I went and um, had, done, had uh, supper with, uh, with my football club, Spurs. I don't own it, I support it. Uh, and I sat next to uh, one of their directors and unprompted she started telling me how marvellous the big society message was and I needed to persevere with it because it had made much more sense of her work in terms of connecting the club with the community. And for her it was all about neighbourliness and, and encouraging people to help people next door and she felt there was tremendous uh, power in that at a time when uh, communities feel disconnected and most of us live in streets where we don't, uh, we know less and less about the people living uh, around us and it's I suppose it's inevitable in a way that people look at it through their different prisms at, at this moment in time because uh, it is an abstract cost, uh, concept at the moment but I'm going to talk a bit about how that's changing and going going to change um, it's also inevitable that at a time when people are feeling a lot of anxiety insecurity frustration anger that that again uh, could often be channeled in terms of cynicism and confusion um, and deliberate deafness as far as the big society uh, is concerned. But we're, we're going to persevere. And of course, again, part of the difficulty for people, I think, is that this is government talking in a very different way to people. Most of us have grown up with government talking bigger and bigger about what it can do for us. And taking more money off us to do that, taking more power, taking more responsibility on this journey that's cross-government, has gone on all my, all my lifetime. And actually, this is a different conversation 
between government and the people, saying, look, even with the cuts, the state is going to be an enormously uh, important part of our lives, but there are going to be areas where the state has got to do less. But we've also got to be quite honest and recognise that in the face of some of the really stubborn, expensive social problems that undermine the country, uh, the state has failed in too many areas. Uh, and we've got to think about doing things in a different way. And why not think about tapping into all the uh, energy, expertise, passion, compassion, uh, insights uh, and energy that's out there uh, in communities? Because on this journey of transferring power and responsibility uh, to government, we've lost some of that. We've lost some of that sense of responsibility. And the big society starts with a challenge to all of us about thinking more about our obligations and our responsibilities beyond just paying taxes uh, and obeying the law. It's about a clear statement about wanting to encourage, ins uh, inspire, support those people who want to make a bigger contribution. It's about a very clear message about wanting to involve active citizens more in this process, about empowering communities and, yes, reforming public services to make them much more responsive to the people who use them uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, pay for them. And it's different because there isn't, it's not a government program. We're used to government uh, pointing to problems and then saying, look, here's the solution with a great big expensive government program. This is not a government program. It's a call to arms uh, uh, to us all. And that is difficult. That is difficult for a lot of people. Um, but the reason why I'm passionate about it and the reason why my faith is strengthened every day in it is that I'm very lucky in my job because every day connects me with more evidence of how powerful, um, well, one, how much is actually going on there, out there in communities that is rich in big society values and how powerful it is. Uh, you can see it in Borsal Heath on the edge of Birmingham, a community which was totally undermined and overwhelmed by prostitution and drugs, where the community had enough, came together, sit round the table with the people making that happen. Um, you sense a real power and a real sense that they are uh, shaping and influencing uh, their future and a really different relationship uh, with the state there. Uh, you feel it in the Broomhall estate in Sheffield where I was last week. Modern Britain, very complex weaving of ethnicity and religion. Uh, violence between Afro-Caribbean and Somalian population there. Again, people have come together from different groups, uh, lots of different groups, an ecosystem of groups determined to try and help improve life on that neighborhood. Talk to the local authority makes their life so much easier, that ability to connect with the community and to understand better uh, what the community actually needs. You see it when you visit social enterprises uh, like Zest or Blue Sky, Zest in, again in Sheffield. You listen to all the passion, enthusiasm, and the ideas and the evidence of how they've totally transformed the way that youth services are delivered. Uh, in that area, totally transform the concept of what a library should be about, totally transform concepts of how you engage people with public health. You sit there opposite the council and the PCT and think, how much money have you wasted over the years doing things uh, in uh, the wrong way? Social enterprise like Blue Sky I'm visiting this afternoon, the only company in the country where you have to have a criminal record to work. <laughs> and they do a brilliant, brilliant job in terms of c connecting uh, offenders with the opportunity to work and prove that they can be trusted. Reoffending rates. 15% against a national average of uh, whatever it is, 66%. Uh, and I, I mean, I could go at the table of meetings with people, community health managers. These are people who have suffered in their life from 
illnesses that have dogged and undermined their lives, whether it be mental health diseases or diabetes, and their instinct is to share that experience of their journey and how they managed it with other people and help other people. And of course they can in a way that no one else can because they've been there, they've done it. They volunteer their time to do it. And I remember the lady leaning over the table and she said, everything I've given, I've got twice back in return. What you were talking about is, is the, the joy of giving. And when you sense people connected with that, you really have a sense uh, of how things could be so much better. And this is what we're trying to uh, reach towards. This is what we're trying to, uh, to inspire. Of course, as, as David has made very clear, government can't just step back and just expect all this to flower. There is a very, very active role for government. And we're on the point of throwing three very, very big levers uh, in the hope that there are things connected to them. Uh, the first, very briefly, um, is um, a localism bill that my colleague Greg Clark is bringing to Parliament in a, a matter of weeks. This is a, Prime Minister's talked about a massive transfer of power uh, to communities. It's, it's, it's extremely radical and in my view will change completely the sense of what it is possible to achieve at a local level. Because one of the most depressing voices I hear in my constituency is, oh, it's not really worth getting involved because it's not as if we can change anything. That is going to change. Um, very, very radical. Secondly, a very radical public service reform, a white paper in the new year. You've already got a sense of how radical we're prepared to be on the public services. Um, we just look at our health policy in terms of a really, really radical shift of power in terms of uh, commissioning there. And again, the, the, the big themes there are about, around the question, what can we do uh, to, to make sure the state does a better job in delivering services that people actually want? Um, what, do we, what can we do to inspire and fire up all the energy that's inside the public services that has been stifled by the way the public services have been run in the past? What can we do to get new providers in, including specifically social enterprises, charities, uh, and uh, voluntary and sector uh, organizations? And then, so white paper in the new year, that will make this all clearer. Third uh, lever, which is the one uh, I'm hanging on to, um, which is touched on what you're talking about, is what can we do to support uh, and uh, encourage people, build the capacity and capability in communities to respond to these opportunities. Because we all know there are some communities who will get this and bite our hand off because they're well organized already, they're powerful already. But there are lots of other communities who feel further away from this process, who are going to need active support and encouragement. That's what we at the Cabinet Office are very largely uh, engaged with. And again, very, very briefly, some of the programs that we're uh, developing a new community grants program targeted at areas of low social capital and high economic deprivation, which is about trying to put pots, little pots of money into the hands of neighborhood groups to help them implement their own neighborhood plans. They'll be supported by um, uh, uh, a, 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 uh, a new number of what we call community organizers. Some of you will be uh, familiar with this concept. These are people who will go in, or already live in communities, and their job is to help build local networks help build and find the local leadership, help make those connections uh, in, uh, within communities, help build the confidence and capability of communities to step up uh, and begin to articulate more what they want and what they need and to campaign for it. Um, the National Citizen Service. Some of you remember the posters from the election. Prime Minister attaches huge personal importance to this and the closer I get to the sea, I see how powerful it is. And, and as, a, as a father of teenagers myself, I think this is a very powerful proposition to teenagers, 16-year-old, because God knows it's complicated being a teenager at that age and at this time. And the proposition is to pull together, bring together teenagers from different backgrounds, uh, which is in itself extremely powerful, 
bring them together on a residential program that takes them out of their comfort zones, stretches and challenges them through an outward bound experience, then encourage them to use the skills they've already got in the community, whether it be cooking at a residential home or teaching football to people younger than yourself, and then uh, encouraging them and, uh, and asking them to structure and deliver their own uh, action project in the community. And it's amazing what these kids have actually done. And when you listen to them talk about the experience and what it's done to transform their own sense of self-esteem and their sense of their own ability to make a contribution, it's amazing. Uh, and then it's not surpri no surprise to me that of the pilots that have happened, 80% of the kids that have gone through, what's the first thing they've done? They've gone to a local charity or a local voluntary organisation and offered to help. There's something very powerful in this. We're piloting it 10,000 places next year, 35,000 places the year after. And finally, because all this needs... Uh, more money uh, because uh, there are going to be people bursting out there with ideas of how things they want to change things. Social entrepreneurs in this country, um, we're bringing to market a thing called a big society bank whose mission will be to grow a market called social investment and make it easier for social entrepreneurs to access capital. So we are thinking very hard about what we can do to actively support and encourage the active system, the people who want to make a contribution, uh, 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 more of a contribution uh, to society. And we're going to persevere. Uh, we take this... This is very, very serious. It's very central uh, to mission. And personally, I think it grows. Uh, it goes with the grain of the human uh, uh, desire for connection. I think it goes with the grain of growing dissatisfaction in this country about the way things are run, a desire for people to feel that they've got a bigger voice uh, and uh, a, a bigger uh, influence. Um, so we're going to persevere, and I hope as we, as we continue that people will begin to see the difference, begin to feel the difference, uh, and embrace it. Uh, because I think uh, people want to see things done differently, uh, and that's exactly what we are doing. Thank you. Good. Um, Nick, some inspiring examples there, fantastic stuff. Um, Jenny, over to you. What do you make of all this? Well, I think that nebulous as this concept is, I'm extremely relieved that um, there is this shift in thinking brought about by this government, because I think that there was absolutely no reason why this vision of a society in which responsible individuals could be liberated to release their energies and think about how their, the world around them ought to work. There's no reason why that should have come from a Conservative government. It was an absolutely disastrous decision by the last Labour government to move us increasingly towards a society in which everything was the responsibility of some official agency of the state. And the government did that not only by, by setting up all kinds of institutions that would do things for you, but by actively making it less possible for people to interact with one another by bringing in so many rules and regulations about whether you had been checked by people before you interacted with old people or young people or disabled people or picked up children in the street or interacted in any way um, with other people around you and created an appalling atmosphere of fear and suspicion in which many of the activities that had taken place for years, whether it was scouting camps or church outings or neighbourhood street parties, people began to retreat from them in the face of insurance, litigation, fears about being considered to be paedophiles or abusers, and people were just giving up on those kinds of activities in their droves. And increasingly, the attitude that you would get when you talked to people about being involved in anything was, well, it's just too much, it's too much trouble, it's too difficult, and uh, I would run too many risks in doing it. And I think it was in the most bizarre direction in which this government went. And um, the way in which this worked out in practice was um, encapsulated for me a few years ago, and I was walking down the street at a party conference in Brighton, and there were a couple ahead of me who were pushing a couple of babies in their buggies. And they each were holding um, a Coke can in their hands and some McDonald's chips. And then as they walked along, they just dropped them both on the street. 
So I ran up behind them in that kind of interfering way and picked them both up and said, excuse me, I think you've dropped something. And the woman was in her 20s, turned around to me and said, what? And I said, I think you dropped this. And she said, uh, yeah, what? And I said, well, do you want to put it in the bin? She said, why would they do that? She said, that's the rubbish people's job, isn't it? What, what do I pay them for? And you thought, oh my God, this is what we've got to, where somebody actually thinks it's their right to drop things on the street because somebody else's job is to pick it up. And I think the trouble with this whole um, agenda is that what we've ended up with now is a society where so many people have been locked into these thought patterns which have been brought about over the past 15 years that I think the biggest um, issue that this government faces is about how to get people to start thinking differently. Have I just, sorry, I've just lost this mic. And I would just want to cite another example of that. Last, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about um, the case of a father who had got involved in a fight between some teenagers outside a church hall. And one of the teenagers who had been throwing um, apples and berries and screaming abuse at the youngsters had run off when challenged by the father. He ran after him, got into his car, drove up to him and said, I'm going to call the police. Teenager burst into tears, said, OK, come back and apologise. Puts teenager in car, comes back. Teenager apologises to all the children. All the children apologise back to the teenager. Everything's over except five minutes later, the police arrive. Father accused of kidnap. Five hearings later, he is in front of the judge who says, I cannot believe that this has come to court. And he asks the CPS to explain themselves. So I ring the CPS and say, do you feel you should have done things differently? The person on the end of the phone said, well, I don't know why he got involved. It wasn't even his child who was hit. I said, oh, I see. Are you saying that only parents should intervene when they see anything going wrong? Well, I'm not saying that, but you have to ask yourself, why was this man involved? And I said, well, so what should he have done in this situation? He should have called the police. So you're saying every time that you see children rowing on the street, you must call the police. That would have been the proper thing to do. So we've ended up with a mentality now where nobody is supposed to get involved and no one has a legitimate role unless they've got some kind of professional standing. And if they have professional standing, then they've got to go through all kinds of checks and regulations. Now, this is the kind of mindset and the kind of fears which this government is going to have to start dealing with because people are going to have to start feeling liberated from their own internal anxieties about doing the wrong thing. But this whole initiative has on the whole received a very negative um, reception from the left, which I've been extremely disappointed by because there's an entire labour tradition which was all about the self-help groups and the cooperatives and people coming together to act against injustice and to work together and labour could have been part of that tradition. And I hope that increasingly people will start, instead of making all kinds of caveats and objections, they're starting to think about how we could do things differently. Because there's absolutely no question, as we all know for ourselves, that there's an immense amount that people can do in their communities and for one another, which doesn't need the intervention of the state, which also makes people feel that their lives have a purpose and a richness and a depth, which has been missing in the kind of statism towards which we've moved. So, Although I think that a lot of this, this detail is unclear, and I was very pleased to hear Nick saying that the one thing he doesn't think the government should do is simply stand back and wait for the big society to grow by itself. Because the one thing we know is that in all societies where the state retreats, you don't get glorious um, community organisations forming. You tend to get crime and disorder and all kinds of things. You absolutely need the state there playing an important role. It's got to fund a lot of the stuff. It's got to fuel a lot of it. It's got to back it up. It can't just expect it to flourish by itself. But I hope that it, that it works, and I hope that a lot of people, instead of complaining about how the detail isn't clear, will get involved in thinking, how do we work together in order to make this a better society? Great stuff, Jenny. Absolutely fantastic. Um, right, this is the point where we hand over to you. We've got some time, and we want your 
arguments, your questions, your agreements, your disagreements. Um, there is a, a roving mic coming around, uh, if you can hang on for that. Um, it would be very helpful if you also say who you are and where you're from, and if you want to sort of particularly single out anyone to answer your question, that would be good too. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Matthews, uh, independent consultant. Um, such is the nature of the big society, I'm not sure if this is a question to the social entrepreneur or to the minister, but it's to one of them. Um, I agree very much with everything Jenny's just said, but just to take a slightly different tack, there is a way of looking at this that says there's nothing new under the sun for two reasons. One, that lots of well-intentioned people under the last administration were trying to tap into the kinds of attitudes out there that Nick was talking about. Uh, and secondly, because as Nick said, those attitudes exist already. And it seems to me that what the debate is about is how to energize more of it. Um, I was very closely involved with an initiative that two very able and well-intentioned people launched under the last administration, Charles Allen and Tessa Jowell. And what they were trying to do was to use the power of communications and marketing to spread what they didn't call, but might have called, big society feelings more broadly. Uh, I disagreed with that rather profoundly, because I think that uh, this, I'm a great believer in brands and marketing, but I'm not sure that that's what's really needed here, is spreading the love. I think what people desperately need is mechanisms at local level that they can tap into. And my question is, what's being done to spread best practice? What's being done to pick up templates like the Borstal Heath one that Nick talked about and turn them into models that people can themselves adopt within their own communities? Very, very good question. Who wants to go first with that one? Um, uh, first, you're right. One of the reasons why I'm actually so optimistic about this agenda is that actually there is a base to build on in the sense that there's, there's, there is lots of activity going out there. Um, but I think there's also another whole group of people who really know what the state of the country is, want to make a contribution, and are, but need some help. Partly because Jenny very eloquently said there's a sort of uh, there are there are anxieties, but they also need to be connected to opportunities uh, that work for them, and connected with other people who uh, think like, like like them. And that that's in a way what the community organisers. Uh, are going to be doing it needs a human it needs a human interface it, it needs someone knocking on the door to say look you know some people around here think that we've gone on too long with this fly tipping problem and we want to get together and actually do something about it it, need, it needs it needs that sort of glue and it needs organizations like the big society network who have, if i understand it correctly they're independent of government are existing if you like to create a platform into which people can plug and get in inspiration and information from other people trying to do the same sort of things there's two things I'd say about one is that one of the ideas that we're looking at uh, inspired by work in the US is the Points of Light Initiative. I don't know if you know much about that, but it was developed by George Bush uh, Senior. Uh, the Points of Light. Points of Light. Do you know about this, Nick? Yeah. yeah. And Ray Chambers, who I think was involved in that back in the 1980s, developed this idea where every single day the US president would point and award someone in a community, an individual or an organization that had been inspiring within their own locality and done something innovative and so on. And we're beginning to look at, we're talking to uh, people in Nick's office and at Downing Street about developing a similar initiative here in the UK. I think the warning sign I would have, the caution I would um, offer up is that I think Balsall Heath used an awful lot of, as an example. I think there's no one who's worked the big society who's not been to Balsall Heath and been really inspired by what they've seen there. But the story there is a 30 or 40 year transformation of that particular community. And I think the danger is that no two communities are the same, and the kind of inspirations in every area are very different. 
And I think that so it's dangerous to put, it's good to share the stories, but I don't think you'd be necessarily pushing for a, for a single way of doing this. I think the thing is that, like Nick, going around the country, I faced an awful lot of rumbustious meetings, not like this at all, was that no matter where you go, there are certain individuals, you come across certain things, you spot certain people doing certain things in a local area, and suddenly this thing comes to life, and suddenly the promise of this idea emerges. And I've not been to a single meeting, I've been to dozens around the country, where someone, someone often, someone in a very unheralded way has, done something, has told me a remarkable story of what they've been doing. In many cases, they haven't even heard of the big society as a concept. And sometimes I get people calling me up saying, I just heard the Prime Minister on the Today program talking to the big society this morning. I think I might be doing it in Hertfordshire. And so, so I think there are, you know, and I think that's, so I think, so I think it's, 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 it's in those unheralded stories and at that very human scale that I think the, 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 the big society becomes illuminating. And I think, so to me, the big society, it's in, uh, it's much more interesting as a series of little stories rather than as one big grand narrative. I think it's been able to uh, keep the discipline in terms of policy making to make sure that it is about enabling and not about imposition. I think it'll be critical. I think that's the direction we are. That's the thing, that's where we are at the moment. I hope we continue in that position. Now, yeah, I, the other thing which I, I don't think I made clear enough, because you touched on it and, and Jenny touched on it as well. What we're talking about here is a very big culture change. Very big culture change. Everyone in this room knows that that's not going to be transformed overnight. This is a journey and we're, we're at the start of it. Um, and then, so I think there's an issue about shaping public expectation <laughs> and, 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 uh, and arguably media expectation uh, as, as, as well, because this is, this is going to take some time. I just wanted to come in on that point, because you know, everyone's going on that Borsal Heath. I'd better declare here that in 1980, I actually worked in Borsal Heath as a community worker. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I didn't start out. I was very young. Uh, it was my first job after graduation when I was deciding what to do in my career. And I went and worked for an inner city um, uh, project. The interesting thing was that you used the word about enabling whatever, but the biggest problem, anyone who knows the Borsal Heath story, will know that in 1980-81, when the Asian community, it was the Asian community in Borsal Heath, that started that debate. The two biggest barriers they faced was one, the local authority, and the second barrier they faced was the police. Uh, the police in particular did not want them to do what they did. And in they, 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 for a number of years, people uh, were kept in contact, were arrested, and were given a pretty hard time. So it, you know, one of the things we have to look at here, as you put in your speech, was also about removing barriers. Now, there are an uh, absolute forest of hands on it, so we're going to take a number of questions together, if you don't <laughs> mind. There's a lady in the green here. Uh, I don't know who the questions are to, but they're, they're statements and questions. I'm Elizabeth Henry. I'm the Chief Executive of Race on the Agenda, Social Policy and Research Think Tank. Um, some of what we've been talking about in relation to the big society this morning reminds me of some of the work in international development, and I think it would be very, very useful at looking at some of that work. I have been involved for about eight years in international development, not now, but uh, certainly I have um, operated and run programs in Africa, mobilizing communities and community organizers in the most rural of areas. So, yeah, I think you should be looking at some international development models. Um, secondly, the, I wanted to talk, just ask a little bit about the volunteers because one of the things that we in the um, third sector ask somewhat concerned about, particularly with, wel with the welfare reform, is that from what we understand, uh, people on benefits will now be required to work about 30 hours a week in volunteering. What we are concerned about is that that may well translate to volunteering. There's thousands, as you know, millions of volunteers already, but it may well translate to volunteering being seen as punitive. 
um, and I think that we think that that needs to be handled very, very carefully. Um, and, and just finally, just very quickly, uh, infrastructure organisations uh, like, like the one that I work with now are already linking communities and grassroots organisations. And another concern is that we feel that that, that it, it, with the present reforms and the present plans um, is not actually being considered as much as it needs to be. There's a range of different things there. There's a lady at the end of the front row here. Theresa Clifford, I'm from Digital Agency Seascape. Um, I, I think it's very positive, the whole big society idea, but I've got two concerns. One is that I'm not sure that the sort of bureaucratisation elements and the snooping elements are going to stop, but maybe take a different form. So, you know, there's a, the idea of the nudge you know, outlook is very popular, you know, nudging people to do what you want them to do, but it has its very sort of sinister undertones as well and behavioural economics and all of that side. I'm, I'm sort of quite concerned about that this is, this whole call for volunteering is just another aspect of encouraging people to do what the, the government wants them to do. And the, the, my second concern is that actually for the government and for the state, it's the wrong focus that we have you know, just come through the worst recession for, you know, many years. And what the state should be focused on is regenerating the economy, looking at major infrastructure questions, looking at rail network, uh, energy policies, all of these things, and focusing on those things at the moment, given the, the, what we've just been through, rather than looking at trying to impose a, a sort of volunteer volunteering outlook, which, as people have said, has got the element that it's um, trying to share the pain and, and getting ordinary people to, to bear the brunt of the cuts. Now, there was, uh, there's a lady in the third row there. Just um, philanthropy tradition and CSR. These, the ultra-high net worth um, and the philanthropy in the States, these should be looked at as well. There are people like the Virgin Unite Foundation who have a fantastic website, The Elders, who are doing amazing things and also engaging on the web and making it sort of attractive and appealing to all sorts of different generations to get involved. Round off this first round, there's a gentleman there in the exciting stripy tie. Thank you. Uh, David Orborn from Matrix and from CAS. Um, absolutely linked to the last question. Uh, I work in health um, and uh, have been working in the States as well as over here. Uh, and one of the things that I, that I notice is, is the fact that uh, social reform over here has come out of philanthropy. Uh, which is now almost almost uh, disappeared from the scene uh, in large scale over here, uh, but is absolutely fundamental uh, to keeping the system uh, running in the states. And what are we going to do to regenerate philanthropy on a large scale, as well as uh, deal with all the micro issues that uh, that have been mentioned? That's a very very good question. So you have a range of different things for a panel want to respond to. You've got sort of question about how you build up philanthropy. Is it the right thing to be doing? The whole point about the welfare reforms fit into this, so there are some lessons we can learn from the international development community. Again, do you, do you want to start off? Well, I, I'll pick the point up, I think, about um, the volunteering and, and attitudes. I mean, I think, I think we have to invest quite heavily in, in people understanding why it's beneficial rather than seeing the top-down message. And, and we've done some research fairly recently over the last 18 months with young people's attitudes to, to, to internships or work experience, etc. And I think we make a whole raft of assumptions, actually, that we don't engage the customer in the way that I think this works for us. 
And what we found is their first perceptions of why it might be punitive were totally wrong with the experience that they put you through. So I think you have to get people to live it a little bit instead of telling them. In the same way as your question was about, it isn't about brand marketing actually, it's why it works for me. And I think that's what we found when we did the Gorbel stuff with people, is that I wanted to promote the community and why it was a good idea from my perspective, not for anybody else's. And the people that came, came to actually look at it because they wanted to learn about why it worked for them, not doing it exactly the same way, frankly. So I'm a great believer in experiential stuff, and I think unless we do that, then I think we do run the risk of people seeing it for the wrong reasons. So, you know, we've got a mature audience out there. I, I, I think we forget who our customers are sometimes. Just because they haven't done something in society for a long time doesn't mean they're not capable of thinking. Just give them that platform. Paul. Okay, two things that came out well, from that, and, and a shame plug for some cast research here. Uh, first off, the philanthropy uh, point. And of course, on uh, Tuesday evening here, we launched uh, the second edition of our family philanthropy report, which is conducted by ESRC Research Centre in, in, in giving and philanthropy. Um, just to point out that actually philanthropy has reawakened very much in, 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 the, uh, in the UK. And, and one of the theses that you could actually argue, um, Mrs Thatcher was mentioned earlier, one of the most interesting things about the, the 80s, early 80s government was Miss, Mrs Thatcher's desire to see a re-energised um, corporate sector. And one of the interesting things she argued would be that she would actually see potentially that as new millionaires would re-engage rather like in America which was a tradition that you quite rightly said we, we seem to have partly abandoned. Um, the, I urge you to read that report. It shows uh, a vast number of new foundations that have occurred in the last couple of years and the re-engagement by many families in philanthropy. Remember the UK, as, as a percentage in GDP terms of corporate giving, um, actually gives uh, only second only to the United States. Um, the other thing is that you mentioned about, uh, if you like, a, a slight resting consultancy I have with a certain Swiss wealth manager. And um, just to say that in that role, um, over the last two years, 25 UBS millionaire clients uh, formed fa charitable foundations. So that activity is happening. It's not on necessarily in the main part of the agenda. And dare I say it to Nick, who knows that, because uh, when I saw him a couple of weeks ago, I did write a report for a certain think tank earlier this year, which pointed out how to re-energize giving by not the mega wealthy, but what we would call uh, pe people of high net worth. Uh, measured uh, basically of between a half a million upwards uh, after you deduct uh, the family home. So um, th there is ways that I do believe government could engage and I identified some, uh, some uh, initiatives there. Uh, just picking up on the IT point just very briefly and again I can't help but say uh, give a plug to our know-how group. Um, the point about that is, is that one of the ways that we've engaged, it picks up about how you use uh, new media. Um, one of the, of course, the things that everybody's into is reality TV shows and into, uh, there I say, things like soaps. Bear in mind Coronation Street uh, still continues. And on Know How, we have this wonderful soap called Mealcaster Tales, which is an everyday story of everyday folk in an everyday voluntary sector town. And you uh, may have picked up the Archers theme there. So, you know, there are creative ways that you can engage. And in that way, we actually, we actually deal with quite complex management volunteer. We've actually got a big society problem launched this week and how we're engaging, overcoming barriers. Uh, so uh, there are some, in some interesting initiatives out there, but they're, they're still got to come to the fore. Okay, good stuff. Um, Nick, do you... Uh, yeah, this is this is all, this is really interesting. We, we the short answer is we are um, uh, we are we'll be shortly uh, publishing what we call a, a green paper about giving, and um, our thoughts on what we can do to encourage and support uh, more people to give more time and money. And um, we need to be very careful in this area 
um, because various governments have tried to do this over the years, that the road is littered with good intentions as far as uh, 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 this is concerned. And I think we have to recognise that we're, we're in, living in an age where there's tremendous um, insecurity and anxiety out there, people feeling stretched financially, lots of people feeling frazzled by life, wondering how on earth um, the government expects them to give more time that they don't feel that they've, that they've got. So we need to be very sensitive and definitely mustn't be framed in any way as sort of encouraging people to sort of um, replace the state in, in some way. So we, this, needs to be, this needs to be presented in a very careful way. But we are, our, our starting point is there are people out there who want uh, to give more and want some help and encouragement and support uh, in doing that. We're also aware, going back, that actually, you know, the debate has got to move on from all the old canard like gift aid and all that kind of stuff. We've got to look at uh, in ways that people are actually reflecting the age. So yesterday I had a meeting with some, some people who developed a platform called Slithers of Time, which some of you may know. That they've created a platform where you can give Slithers of Time uh, exactly uh, 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 that in a, in, a, in, a, in a coherent way. And I think, we, I, think that, I, think there's, I just think we need to be very, very thoughtful about that. But the impulse in government is to ask ourselves, what, what can we do? to encourage and support more people because we think there is uh, a will uh, out there and people need uh, more help. And I look at this in a very idealistic way. By the way, if you haven't missed that we are rather concerned about the economy and investing infrastructure, um, then um, you know, stay tuned because uh, uh, we are. But um, um, I, look, I, look at it, I, I look at this very perhaps idealistically and one of the wonderful things about being a politician is you every day you spend meeting people and having to, an opportunity to observe what makes people tick what makes people happy and unhappy. And on my journey through life, I've been struck that some of the most satisfied people, totally at ease with themselves and their own sense of self, are those who are givers, people who have been connected with the joy of giving, with the opportunity to share what they've got uh, with other people. And I would just simply like to connect more people with that. Uh, in terms of your point, compulsory volunteering is an oxymoron. And therefore, we have to be very careful in our language between community work to help people um, achieve milestones back into a job and encouraging people to give time and be connected with what I call the joy of giving. Yeah. And there's a gentleman right at the back there with his hand up. Um, can I pick up, sorry, David Brown, can I pick up something quickly that the minister said in his opening remarks? You said that this is not a normal government intervention because you're not taking more money off us. Does that mean in the medium term, because government is trying to do less, you're taking less money off us in taxation, which will mean our taxes will go down because of this? One. I think you heard what you wanted to hear. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's not what I said. I said, I said that we, um, uh, we've been on a journey as a nation together, most of us looking around the room. Um, you know, we've lived in an age where uh, the government has uh, bigged itself up over many years in terms of it being the solution to all the nation's problems, and on that journey has taken more of our money, more power, and more responsibility. Uh, and we're simply saying that we uh, are going to have a different conversation with the British people, but I'm not sitting here pledging tax cuts because that would have career implications. <laughs> there's a supplementary, I think. So you spoke about the scepticism um, in, um, on the left, but also there's, I think there's a scepticism in the, in the nation in general because of the disconnect between politics uh, and, and the Westminster world and the rest of the country. How much of this is, is, is causing a scepticism in, in the big society? policy as a whole and, uh, um, uh, and causing a lot of damage. There's a lady at the end of that row there in the pink top. 
Caroline Deal from the Media Trust. I've got two related questions to Nick and to Kevin, actually. Kevin, you spoke right at the beginning about the challenge of getting joined up thinking across government. And we're finding uh, this quite an interesting response to some ideas that we've got around getting a whole the, the un generation of young unemployed people to engage in uh, jobs and setting up their own businesses in creative digital media enterprises. And across all the government departments, people want young people in jobs, Biz wants people, young people setting up new businesses, DCMS wants local media, broadband, digital initiatives, and this is perfect for the big society. So what is the challenge? Because I find, I was talking to somebody who was head of um, government communications uh, a few years ago yesterday, and he said, there's no way, no way they're going to join up across government departments. Nobody ever does that. And uh, is there a way that we can create a really fantastic joined up uh, initiative around young people and creative industries and new businesses. And then my second question related to that is, um, are you in Reed? Are you, do you have experience of getting young people to set up their own businesses in ones and twos and threes? Because there, there aren't going to be very many jobs offered over the next few years to young people. So how exciting if we can get them setting up grassroots, digital, creative, businesses, enterprises and social enterprises that link into the big society and deliver digital big society initiatives for our communities? Okay, two good questions there. There was a very patient lady in grey in the second row here. Um, I wanted to know what the role of big business in this. Is, it, is the big society going to create millionaires? Is this uh, entirely a, uh, a, a voluntary philanthropic sort of initiative or is this a business opportunity and as I said what can a large business do for this and then there's a completely um, other side of the, of the coin which uh, Julia and I have just been talking about what happens to those right at the bottom the people who don't have the energy to organize who are overwhelmed by the problems of poverty or handicap or just living in really difficult community situations how does, how are, where are they going to find the responsibility, or sorry, the energy to be responsible, if you like? I mean, there is a kind of slight tendency to see this as a kind of middle-class concept, and I do think it needs to be sensibly addressed. Um, uh, yeah. Karen, we've talked about this before, jo uh, joining up government. Um, government's bloody hard. <laughs> um, but... Uh, we're determined to do it, and we've all set up all kinds of structures to try and make this work better. Actually, without, you can make a big impact at the start when you're new into government. Because most of us who are shadow ministers opposition um, you, did things with no staff at all and used to sit around taking decisions and uh, dreaming up better ways of, of doing things and then making it happen as far as we could. Um, and that worked really well. And then you go into government and suddenly rooms are full of people scribbling notes and saying... Um, uh, and, um, and, but you've got to sort of drive through that, you know, and just say, stop tutting, we're actually going to do that this way, and just going to live with it, you know. And uh, we talked, a lot of this is about culture change, massive culture change in terms of inside government. My colleagues, in, if you listen to Greg Clark talk about this, they are literally talking about uh, inverting CLG on its head. Instead of all those civil servants sitting there to make ministers look good and to implement ministers' ideas, you've turned it completely on its head. Civil servants exist to go and help communities with their ideas. So, you know, there's really quite radical thinking going on about what, uh, what the role of, of governance is. Role of big business, absolutely fascinating. Because uh, I I've, I've forgot to mention, um, my official will chide me about this after the, today is Social Enterprise Day. 
therefore I've, I've clocked that. Social Enterprise Day, and we celebrate that. Not least because um, non-social business has screwed up in a big way, um, thanks to the banks and the contamination that has uh, caused in terms of public perception of big business. And so I talked about big society as a challenge to us all. Um, no bigger challenge, really, than to big business in terms of that, their response. And that's why I spent yesterday breakfast talking to a lot of them about what they're going to be doing differently in terms of supporting community. Uh, funnily enough, bizarrely, a lot of the supermarkets who get a really you know, bad, bad uh, reputation sometimes for being sort yeah. of big corporate business are actually doing amazing things to local level. And they, what they've got is it actually, um, a bit, it's a bit like the government challenge here. Stop thinking about big stream strategic programs for the top and actually just transfer the responsibility down to the stores and actually fire up people in the stores about, you know, what's, what, what should we be supporting locally? Do what you can to get out there and find out what's going on. Raise money, give time, and we'll support you doing that. Uh, and they're getting that. that, that that's exactly what changes we were talking about uh, 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 yesterday. And the really important point about the people, if you like, really struggling to think about whether this is for them who are frazzled by life, as I call it. And, uh, and, and, and I think this is a hugely important point. I feel very passionate about this. The big society can't be just about the Northwood Residents Association feeling more powerful. Because uh, they'll get it, they just have to retune. They've got to, they can think differently. At the moment, they just think about duffing up the council, but then they've got a network of 5,000 people and their power to do things for themselves and the community. They're just, just going to retune eventually, and they'll get it. I'm much more concerned about communities where there aren't residents associations, where that actually... But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of social capital that's less visible. And what we've got to do and be proactive, as Jenny said, government's got an active role to play in terms of encouraging, supporting people to go in and actually tease out that social capital, bring people together and build people's confidence that it's worth getting involved because you can change things and start bringing people together. Big Society Network can play a part of that. Our community organisers can play a part of that. The voluntary community sector can play a hugely important role in it because of their ability to connect, support and mobilise people. And that's why they are at the heart of the Big Society Centre and a key partner. Steve, you were keen to get in on this yeah, point yeah, of business. A couple of things. In response to Caroline's point about joined up government, I mean, my, my hope and the promise of this is that we'll have more joined up um, services at a local level. I think that's much more realistic, that people merge at the local level with more integrated services. And I think there's lots of good examples where that's taking place. Um, I want to talk about the business point of view because I think the thing that's really uh, excited me over the last uh, three or four months is the response from business to this. And we have a huge meetup coming up in a few weeks' time, which is uh, facilitated by business in the community, where businesses are going to come forward and look at pledging and support uh, for the big society. And what's been really interesting about it is it's, it hasn't been the typical kind of, forgive me, the typical sort of CSR kind of drive. But it's actually coming from the top of the organisations. It's actually coming from the brand strategy people. So there are great examples: Tesco, O2, Orange, thrilling examples just developed in the last three or four months of examples who've responded to this. It's like a dog whistle's gone out, they've picked up on it, they've come back to us. So we're going to be doing three or four big immersive workshops early in the new year with mobile companies, with retailers and so on, to begin to kind of hothouse and develop some of those ideas. People have been coming to us with thinking, which ideas which are very, very granular, very, very localised and so on. And a really good example of that, I think, and one we're going to cite in a few weeks' time, is, and a celebrated example, is the Pepsi Fresh campaign. I don't even know much if you've heard of that. So every year for the last 15 years, Pepsi have been buying uh, airtime during the Super Bowl, spending tens of billions of dollars on it. And this year, they decided to change it to instead to give that money away. And they, they developed a thing called Refresh Everything. And every month, they give millions of dollars away 
check it out on the website. It's a wonderful website. Where every, every month, two, two your community organizations get $250,000. I think 10 get $50,000. 50 get $5,000 and so on. And basically, just turn that around. Now, that's not, that hasn't come from CSR. That's come from people at the very top of the organization who decided the best way that this brand can be represented in the world is by supporting these kind of activities. So one of the things that we want to do in the network over the next few months is begin to sh uh, showcase more examples of this. I'm hugely excited about, what, about the response from business to some of the ideas that we're talking about. And I think, well, I think it's the 2nd of December is the planned meetup with business, so keep an eye on that as well. Good. It's not just leadership, it's, it's, it's HR as well that are driving this change because most businesses recognise their most important assets are human and those assets are demanding different things of the place that they work. Kevin, you wanted to... Yeah, I think it was a sort of Caroline's question about so young people and startups, etc. I'm quite a simple soul with this, I think. You know, we need to start learning. I think we, we spent too long trying to feed people rather than teaching them to fish. And I think that, you know, that's, that's the parable that I have whenever we go out with this, is that people can be helped to make choices. The, 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 the very, very, very disadvantaged people miles away, actually you just need to find a solution for them by investing some time. And why I'm excited for the first time seriously about where the government's work programme might go is that if it truly wants to make it black box, then I think we can join up government much more effectively by having the right people who actually think about what the solutions are much more clearly. And I've never seen that platform because I've been told to do things too many times about go and get me those outcomes all the time at the end of the day. I, I think we're going to have a much maturer industry and partnership based than we've ever had before. The supply chains will bring all the professional people to the table. The clever organisations, I think, will know how to work that so that you get joined up solutions at the end of the day. And if we really listen to what the customer wants, and I don't, you know, you can't have its Jaguar and its swimming pool because that's your stone benefits forever, then I think we actually design things with the customer. And I think, you know, in my organisation, we fight constantly to stop the frontline people who work, and I think they're fantastic at you know, working with their, their frontline customers, for telling them what to do. Stop telling them what to do. Help them to understand what it is they can do. Your job's to be an enabler, a broker, you can use all of those words. And if we don't capacity build in that area, both at the very front bottom end of the business and the top, we won't make this journey. So I think the enlightened organisations that understand that um, will get people to change their attitudes. And the most powerful thing is making the decision yourself. So let's, let's kind of work on that together is what I'm, I'm optimistic about. Last word from Jenny, because I'm just conscious, we, I'm afraid I'm just about to run out of time. Oh, oh God, last word, that's terrible responsibility. <laughs> I wasn't, just quickly on, on the deprivation point, there's a, um, a housing association in East London, I think it's the Poplar Housing Association, I think Steve will know about it, and I talked to somebody about that six months ago and said, so exactly how does this kind of thing work in a deprived area? And they said, it's absolutely extraordinary. They not only provide an um, enormous amount of housing, but they run cafes which local people have started up by themselves, and they've got job clubs, and they've got all kinds of social initiatives. And they say, once you start showing people that actually they can come together and start doing things for themselves, once people realise that there can be real effectiveness from what they're doing, then people in deprived areas are possibly more keen than anybody else. It's just that they have to be shown that opportunity. So I think it's, uh, it's, um, it's actually very patronising to assume that this kind of stuff is only going to apply um, to the middle class. Um, and I was also going to say the scepticism point. I mean, scepticism is what journalists trade in. You know, where would I be without it? You know, I challenge, one challenges everything. And it's a proper way um, to approach life is to ask, how is this going to work? And what does it really mean? And what do these proper, what, what do these promises amount to? But I think that has to be distinguished from the kind of sour cynicism that just sits back and says it's all bound to fail and it's somebody else's fault if it does and it's nothing to do with me, which is, um, I think, m much more prevalent at the moment as an attitude. And I think that's what, we, what we've got to work against. And I think there are going to be all kinds of practical difficulties. And I think um, the culture change within um, officialdom is, is, is going to be a huge one because um, anyone who has been dealing 
with um, the government over the past few months, apparently, in anything where they're trying to approach civil servants and saying, can we do this differently, runs up against, I'm sorry, you've got to tender that, or this isn't the right department, or come back next Friday, and you know, nothing is happening. So it's going to be very difficult, but it's still worth trying. Brilliant stuff. That's, an, I think, an important point to end on. Um, you've all asked um, brilliant questions. Thank you all so much for coming. All of our panellists, great, great contributions. I've learned a lot from this. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.